The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. at Luke 18. Picking up right where I left off last time, we saw a short portion and I'm going to deal with a longer portion. You may have questions as I read of why I'm combining what appear to be several separate elements. I hope that will answer itself as we look at this passage. Luke 18, we're reading the words and teaching of Jesus in beginning in verse 9. Jesus also told This parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, Oh, all those things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. And distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. May God bless his eternal word to us. I want you to use your imagination to transport your mind back a whole century ago to exactly this time in the month of February, 1912. 
Actually, it's pretty impossible for us to do that. I don't think any of us could really picture the world that was in 1912. But let's just imagine that I time-traveled, and there I am on Prince Street, standing on the corner in Lancaster, ready to interview some folks in 1912. First, I might come up to a gentleman, and I'd say, Sir, would you like to try out my cell phone here? Maybe you'd like to make a call to Paris, France. Here, you can do it. And he would look at me like I was a creature from outer space. And he'd say, that little device? It has no wires. How ridiculous. You can't call Paris on that. Next, I might find a lady walking along with a newspaper folded along with her handbag. And I would notice that the headline of the newspaper said, Cunard Lines launches its greatest ship, the Titanic the unsinkable ship ready to make her maiden voyage to New York. And I would say, Madam, would you, have you read that article? Are you interested in that? And she, oh, yes, what a marvel they have made. How I would like to be on that ship. And I would say, dear lady, would you know that that ship in less than two months is going to sink in the mid-Atlantic and 2,000 people are going to die? Oh, no, sir. You, you are very foolish. That can't happen. Why, if you would read this article, you would see that it says even God couldn't sink the Titanic. And then there might be a gentleman marveling at a, a skyscraper being built in Lancaster, four stories high, in 1912. And I would say, sir, I see you're interested in architecture. Uh, did you know that in 2001, 89 years from now, there'll be two buildings in New York City, each 110 stories tall, and they will completely crumble to the earth when two airliners are flown right into them full of people, and they crash and burn, and the buildings go down. And he would say, what kind of an idiot are you? No building could ever be 110 stories tall. And anyway... What's a jet airliner? Do you see how things that people of the past might have thought were strange, bizarre, utterly ridiculous become possible? They become possible because of human technology either exceeding bounds or, in the case of the Titanic, failing to exceed the bounds. They come about because human experience and knowledge expands and People go through things. I, I could have spoken to those people about something called World War I. They would not have comprehended what I was talking about, let alone the wars that have followed. But I want you to understand today that not everything that looks impossible at a particular moment in the human timeline is someday going to be changed and become possible. There are things that are impossible that have always been impossible and always will be impossible. And I believe Jesus Christ was talking about those very things here in Luke chapter 18. Of things about the human condition and transformation needed in the human condition that would not, could not ever happen unless God, by miraculous supernatural power, utterly transformed the people involved. And these impossibilities remain in place. They remain unchanged and unchangeable by any powers within human reach. 
Now we're looking at Luke 18, 9 to 27, and you saw that I'm proposing a passage here that's substantial. Ordinarily, uh, preachers would, would get three sermons out of this because there are three separate incidents or, or there's a, a parable in one and two incidents of, of life experience here, and you could easily preach on each, and I've done that. But I was looking at these and thinking of how they are actually united. And they are united into one theme that I want you to see today by the very last verse that I read, verse 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. That's a very simple theme, actually. It actually sets forth one of the most important principles about what salvation is with God in Christ is all about. First of all, look with me at verses 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I summarize the theme of this part this way. It is humanly impossible to bow your natural pride until the Spirit of God breaks that pride. Two opposite people are shown here. They're almost caricatures. It was a fictional thing, and yet you could almost imagine that Jesus had seen something like this. A, a Pharisee, a, a righteous man, comes to the temple, or one supposing himself to be righteous anyway, comes to the temple. He was at home there. He was accustomed to being there. He sort of swaggered his way right in and went right up close to the sanctuary and prayed as people would in those days, usually with hands upraised and standing upright, and prayed a prayer. At least I think it was a prayer. But then I look at it a minute. Notice that he said the right first word, God, or oh God, depending on your translation. But actually, that was the only part of it that was a prayer. Because after he said the address, God, he said in two sentences, I, 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 I. He gave his resume to God. God, I thank you that I'm pretty great. At least I'm a whole lot better than most people. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I don't extort money. Why, I'm not even like that tax collector. Look at that scroungy character over there. And God, you know that we Jews are required to fast once a week. I fast twice a week. And when it's time to tithe, I dig deep in my purse and give generously. God, I can't really think of anything I have to ask you. Don't need a thing. Thank you very much. I'm doing very well. That is actually not a prayer. Charles Spurgeon called this fellow too good to be saved. And we look at him and say, well, goodness, I've I'm certainly never been like that. I'm not that arrogant. Well, I suggest be careful. It's pretty easy for anybody who moves in the circles of serious Christianity or conservative churches to be a little bit like this guy. I thank you, O God, that I don't belong to fill in the blank, this group that doesn't have their faith right. I thank you that I'm not out on the streets doing this. I'm not at the casino on Sunday. I'm not even at the golf course on Sunday morning. I thank you, O God, that I'm actually doing okay. Well, there's a different way to pray. And you see the man who did that, the tax collector. He's also called a publican in some of the parables. Whatever, he was participating in a, an occupation that 
made him despised. Nobody liked to pay taxes. The taxes paid then were at an extortion rate, and the people collecting them also took their own part when they collected. They told you how much you owed, and so you didn't know whether you really owed that or not. And this man came and appears to be very broken. Notice he didn't even come into the central part of the temple. He sort of stood back as if he knew he might be soiling the court of the Gentiles or something with his sandals because of his unrighteous life. And he prayed too. Started with the same word, actually. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. It was a 100% prayer. It was a confession of sin. It was a petition for mercy. And the passage says, Jesus said, he went home having received exactly what he sought, the mercy of God. For after all, isn't that the prayer that God always does and actually always must answer? We can talk about prayer. I spoke a little bit about it last week in the widow coming. I talked about waiting on God and persevering and and how our desires change as we wait in prayer and so on. And sometimes we don't know what to pray for when we start and it's something else that we need. Well, here's a prayer request that we can say, you can always pray for this and always know that you have it the minute you ask for it. Mercy. God will, God does always answer this prayer for mercy. We've called this sometimes the sinner's prayer because it is a recognition. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I don't have any claim. I can only look down. But on the other hand, I can only speak up and say, God, I need what only you can give. And our text says in verse 14, this man went to his house justified, a very big New Testament word, forgiven, absolved from his sin. The first guy wasn't absolved from his sin because he didn't know he had any. And he didn't ask to be absolved because he didn't think he needed to be. The poor, wretched guy went home in a way 100% opposite of the human pride shown by the religious man. How do you get to where the tax collector was? I believe Scripture is teaching that is not a natural way for people to be. The natural way for people to be is the Pharisee. Compare. Tell God, hey, you know what? I'm not perfect, God, but I'm doing pretty good. I think I'd get a B on the righteousness curve grade, maybe even a B plus, maybe even an A minus. I'm okay. Come to God on your face and say, God, be merciful, and you're doing something that's humanly impossible. People only do that when the Spirit of God has awakened them to what they are. Now, secondly, a very short part at the middle of what I read is verses 15 to 17, where we see it is humanly impossible for adult independence to become childlike dependence. They were bringing babies. The Greek word is for infant. There's a several words for children or young people, but this is the, the youngest word. They were bringing the babies to Jesus to give a blessing to them. 
And you know the disciples. They're kind of like the presidential campaign managers. The candidate has to be here at 9 o'clock, and he's got seven minutes for that uh, you know, photo op, and then he has to be over here. That's the way they were thinking about Jesus. And they said, come on, we don't have time for all these babies. Babies aren't important people. Babies can't get healed from blindness or do spectacular things that will impress people. Shuttle the babies off to the side, for heaven's sake. And Jesus said, please let them come. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot in those two little words, of such. At the first worship service today was my youngest grandchild in the arms of his mother. I'm experienced enough as a grandfather to know now what to expect. If you've never been a grandparent, let me tell you, you'll probably experience this. The, the littlest baby, you know, w- when they're brand new, they're okay because they, uh, they don't know what's going on in the world. But, but after a couple months, as soon as their eyes focus and they know what, who mom is and what mom smells like and feels like, they won't have time for you, Grandpa. They might tolerate you if they're in a really good mood or half asleep. But forget it. They're not going to give you an awful lot of their time. And this particular grandson who was here kind of doesn't want anything to do with me right now, but I'm okay. Because I know he's in his mom face. Mom is the center of the universe. And it's always the arms are going to be reached out. They're going to go to mom, not me. And that's all right. That's an instinctive trust in the most trustworthy person in his universe who supplies his every need, his food, his you know, diaper changes, the whole thing. Taken care of. Mom will do it. Mom will do it gently. Mom will love me no matter what. Mom won't criticize me. Who's that grandpa guy? Jesus is saying... We need to have a trust of our Heavenly Father like that. That he is everything in our universe and can have our implicit, complete, absolute trust. Now, just like that little infant who's going to grow to be two or three and he'll finally have a little time for me and figure out I'm a good guy after all, he's going to outgrow that mom-centeredness. And he's going to you know, learn a little critical thinking and he's going to get a little bit jaded by life and he's going to become independent and the day will come when he might even hurt his mom deeply by telling her he doesn't need her or she's wrong or something else. You see, it's humanly impossible for adult independence to become childlike dependence, but yet that's what we need in our relationship to God. How are we going to get that? We're only going to get it by a gift from God. Have you noticed how children take gifts differently than adults? If I singled one of you adults out and came over to your house this afternoon and said, hey, I just thought I'd stop by. I have a little present for you here. I'd like you to have this. You'd, you'd be really puzzled. You'd say, Pastor, what are you giving me a gift for? It's not my birthday. It's not Christmas. I, I, I don't want to take a gift from you. You shouldn't be doing this. And then if I did finally persuade you to open the gift and it was nice and you liked it, you'd be calculating, oh, I've got to get something for the pastor because he gave me a gift. I've got to give him a gift back. That's how adults deal with gifts. You know how a two-year-old gets a gift or a three-year-old? Have you been around them on Christmas morning? When the wrapping paper is filling the air? Gift for me, yes. Open it, play with it. It's mine. 
They have to be taught to say thank you. They take a gift and they, yes. God is saying you need to take the gift like a little child without all that adult stuff, all those adult layers of behavior around it. How do we do that? Only if God remakes our minds into a childlike faith. You know, it struck me the other day, seems a big revelation to me at this point in my life, that the Bible uses the phrase, the children of God, for Christians. It's a synonym for Christians, the children of God. And I, I thought to myself, hey, the Bible never says the adults of God. Isn't that interesting? It never describes the church as the adults of God, the children of God. Because he's describing our spirit and our mind and the ways in which we come to him in an implicit trust that only he can teach, only he can bestow. It's impossible for us to have it as adults. Thirdly, segment of verses 18 to 25, the rich young ruler, he appears in all the Gospels. Mark has an interesting insight Included there, Mark 10 tells that when this man turned away after hearing Jesus' requirement, it says Jesus loved him. It's not explained exactly. I, I, I think I'm interpreting it right when I say Jesus took pity on him. He had a deep compassion for him. Rich as he was, Jesus could understand what made this man turn away, and he was sad by it. Well, this third segment teaches us this. It is humanly impossible to stop wealth from interfering with a relationship to Christ as your Lord. It is humanly impossible to keep wealth from interfering with a relationship to Christ as your Lord. This man was probably a little bit like the Pharisee. He did seem to have a greater humility about him, and he said, what do I have to do, Lord? I I think I'm doing okay, but there seems to be something I need. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I like to think he came with his checklist, you know? He had checked off a lot of things, and he, he knew there must be something that wasn't on his list. And he said, Lord, could you put the extra item on my list so I'll know how to check it off? Now, there are actually Bible commentators who speculate, and it's only a speculation, that this rich young ruler could have been Saul of Tarsus. We don't know that Saul of Tarsus ever had physical contact with Jesus before the cross and resurrection. But he was in the vicinity He was around Jerusalem. He fit the profile of this man almost exactly. Now, that isn't saying it was Saul of Tarsus. We don't know that. It probably was not. But the interesting thing is, here was a man with the same mindset that Saul had as a young, well-educated ruler, Harvard degree, the whole thing, you know. And he came and said, there must be one thing I need. Well, Saul, who became Paul had learned about it. This man came and said, oh yes, the law, I know all about that. I've kept all that. No problem. I check those off every day. No difficulty, Jesus. Paul, who had had his heart revolutionized, turned inside out, understood what the law was about. And in Galatians 2.16, he said, a man is not justified by doing works of the law, for by those works no flesh is justified. In Romans 3, he said, by the law comes a knowledge of sin. That's what the law is for, not to tell you how great you're doing. I wonder if you really 
You know, that, that passage we used in the Heidelberg Catechism in the service earlier was a little bit of a difficult, heavy-going passage. If you might go back and look at it, because it, it actually has us saying, I have not kept the commandments at all, ever. That's right. That's what this man needed to know. Not, oh yes, I've taken care of that. And then Jesus brought the zinger to him and said, and by the way, Jesus, the one person who could in all of history say, I have kept all the commandments all my life, always, perfectly, impeccably, I've never broken one, only Jesus could say that. Then he came and said to this man, you know what? There is one thing, let me mention it to you. It's interesting, the commentators point out that the commandments Jesus mentioned were all from the second part of the law, the the sort of human obedience part, not from the first part about God. And now he comes back to him, and, and in so many words, he doesn't say it exactly this way, but in so many words he says, by the way, uh, do you know that those Ten Commandments have a first commandment? I wonder if you know what that is. You shall have no other gods in my presence. My friend, you have a god. It's your money. You have to stop worshiping it then you will have done the one thing that you know is missing. And so go and sell all your goods and give it all away and then come. Now, you know, people get all bent out of shape. Is this what every rich person is actually supposed to do? This was a drastic prescription for a man who was worshiping his wealth. It's not necessarily the prescription for every wealthy person, but if anybody's worshiping his wealth... He needs to do this. He needs to let go his hold upon it. He needs to crucify his golden God, and then he can come back and make his God the Savior who was crucified for him. Well, as he went away, Jesus made that interesting observation. It would be easier for a camel. You ever sat on a camel? I sat on a camel one time. It turned around and tried to bite me. Some of you who went to Israel with me remember that little incident. Probably, probably wasn't used to heavy-duty preachers sitting on its back. It turned around and went, rah! It was pretty scary, actually. Camel, a gawky, huge thing, long legs, looks like a ridiculous animal. How do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? You don't. And by the way, you know, there's a Bible uh, translation that a particular Bible, I won't name it, that was very popular for a long time, that contained in its notes uh, something about a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. It was a small, narrow gate. And, and they said, well, here's what Jesus meant. There was this Eye of a Needle gate, and if you took your camel and took all the packs off its back and had the camel kneel down, it could crawl through that gate. In other words, it would be as if Jesus was saying, it's very difficult to do this, but it can be done. That's not what he was saying. He was saying it's completely impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Completely impossible for a rich man who loves and worships his riches to get into the kingdom of God in that condition. Impossible. Not just hard. You've probably all heard of the common little story about the monkey that saw a quarter inside a bottle with a narrow neck and the monkey slipped his slender little wrist in there and Wanted to get that shiny quarter, and he grabbed it, and he held on, and guess what? Uh Uh-oh, how do you get back out of the bottle? You can't get the quarter out clutched in your hand through the neck of the bottle. That's what this man wanted, was trying to do. C.S. Lewis said, 
There was a time in his conversion when he was ready to come to Christ. He understood the totality of the claim of Jesus to be his Lord, but he paused at the entrance to the kingdom. Lewis said it exactly this way, I saw that there was no small area in the depth of my soul that I could put a barbed wire fence around and tell Christ, you cannot rule that area. He wasn't yet a professed believer, but he saw that. If Jesus is going to be Lord, he's got to be Lord everywhere. I can't shut him out of some part, my wealth, my intellect, or something else. And Lewis said, I wanted to control certain parts of my life. But finally he bowed. The monkey let go of the quarter. The rich man wouldn't let go of that which he could not bring into the kingdom along with him. The conclusion is this. Salvation in Christ really is God's work entirely. He makes what is impossible to be possible. Peter heard this, what was said. He said, Lord, I don't know what you're saying. Who can be saved? If a man like this can't be saved, who can be? And then the great word came in verse 27. Jesus said, what is impossible for men is possible with God. Camels don't squeeze through eyes of needle. Proud humanity doesn't naturally humble itself. Jaded 40-year-old minds don't easily become childlike. People with wealth have a very serious obstacle if they will try to carry worship of wealth into God's kingdom. These things can't happen by human effort. But by G-R-A-C-E, God's work alone, you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Every point of our salvation, the beginning of it, the middle of it, the end of it, is completely the miracle work of God. Ezekiel Chapter 36 talks about God saying, a new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put in you. A leopard doesn't change its own spots, but God can change the leopard's spots. Every child born into this world is absolutely, completely, totally helpless, and that is what God would have us understand ourselves to be in order to receive his saving grace, just like that little baby. Billy Graham is certainly one of the great men of our generation. He's in his 90s. His wife has gone home to heaven. He's in precarious health. The day will come, probably not. I don't know anything you don't, but the day will probably come when Dr. Graham goes home to heaven soon. When he comes home to heaven, will Billy Graham go to heaven because, number one, he has preached visibly and publicly, directly to more people than any human being in the history of the world? Will he go to heaven because he's kept his organization, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, with honest integrity in its finances and its dealings throughout decades when others have had scandals and everything? Will it be because he was absolutely faithful to his wife in days when he was a dashing, handsome man and Women chased after Billy Graham, and he was faithful to Ruth. Will any of those be the reasons? They're all true. And he could have stood like that Pharisee and said, God, I thank you that I'm Billy Graham, and I've preached to everybody, more people than anybody else, and I've kept financial integrity, and I've been faithful. None of it counts. Billy Graham knows that he prayed the prayer of that tax collector. God, be merciful 
to me a sinner. And he's prayed it every day of his life. What is impossible for any man or woman to create is possible with God's miracle of grace at work within us. God be merciful to me a sinner. Save me for Jesus' sake. The hymn writer told it so unforgettably. Nothing, not a little bit, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. You need grace. I need grace. Salvation is by grace. Thanks be to the God of grace. Our Father, this simple, powerful truth, we praise you. We do not have what it takes to come to you, and yet there is not one person here so stained, so broken, so ruined by life in this world that they're worse than that tax collector. And so teach us to pray, God, be merciful to me. And answer that prayer as we know you will, for Jesus' sake. Amen.